Welcome to Season 4 of the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. I'm Karen Hay and this season we're delighted to bring you the voices of authors from the deep south of New Zealand. Today we hear the second part of Naomi Arnold's interview in 2020 with Dunedin-based author Barbara Else. Barbara Else is a celebrated New Zealand author who's been closely involved with a number of writers and literary organisations. She's served on the New Zealand Book Council and on the NZSA National Council and was instrumental in setting up both the New Zealand Association of Literary Agents and the New Zealand Association of Manuscript Assessors. Naomi Arnold asked Barbara how she got so involved in not just writing books but also the business of books. The Association of Literary Agents was, um, that was instigated by Glennis Bean um, and that was a year or two before the Manuscript Assessors Association. Um, I can't remember a lot about the agent side of things. As far as our agency goes I've, I've done a lot of the reading for it and the, the decisions on that but, but not much, I haven't had much to do with with contracts and the, the technical side of it. Um, but it was useful, certainly, to have that association. Um, the Association of Manuscript Assessors, that was set up in about 2000, yeah. I think. Um, and that was partly because we, we kept seeing manuscripts from people who'd and hearing stories about people who'd who'd had difficult experiences with with um, freelance editors or assessors and we thought yes some of it didn't seem didn't seem quite right and we didn't know what to do about it um, we felt people were being possibly being exploited there was nothing we could pin down really, but we, I had the opportunity really, it was, it was frankly when I was recovering from a, um, an operation for breast cancer, I couldn't focus on writing, I couldn't focus on anything much and I thought, right, but I want to keep my brain active, I'm going to ask a few people, leading editors, what they think about this situation and should we should we set up an association similar to the Association of Literary Agents? And I contacted initially um, Stephen Stratford and Graham Lay, and they said, yes, we've been wondering what to do ourselves. And they suggested some other people, <coughs> like leading editors um, Anna Rogers, Jane Parkin, uh, Maria um, Lungowska, can't remember offhand, can't remember the other names right now. But you know, we've widened the group of people we were talking to and they all said, yes, we've had so many distressed writers that we can't help because they've lost money here and there. And, and <clears throat> let's, so we decided, yes, we would draw up a, a code of practice and Really, that's all we could do, and it was simply to show to show the Society of Authors and Book Publishers Association and 
publishers, you know, anyone involved in the area, this, this is the way things ought to be um, handled. And um, I think that was an important thing to do. I think, I think it has helped considerably. Yeah, something I'm quite proud of. Mm. Well, to be a, a writer and to know that your manuscript, as you say, has signed on to a code of conduct is, must, is a pretty comforting thing, I imagine. And I, I think assessors who aren't members of the association can still look at the code and um, think, oh, okay, that's what we need to do. Um, so that's that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the main purpose of it to show that you know there is a way to handle such things. And and the, the, one of the main things is you you can't make false promises to people. Yeah. You can't say this work is sure to be published. All you can honestly say is that. If you do this amount of work on it, this kind of work, and you do that successfully, then then um, publishers will will be more likely to have a favourable response. So it's part of the professionalising of the industry in New Zealand. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and I think it's worked in that as manuscript assessors now we see a much overall much higher standard of things submitted, and writers know a lot more about the need for being professional themselves and they know more about the kind of work they might be advised to do. What sort of work, you know, now compared to then and, and writers are obviously educating themselves and what, mm. so, so what, what sort of things were wrong in their work, is it presentation or? Approach? Presentation used to be a big part of it. I think, I think the Writers know they need to do a lot more work themselves before they before they look for other help. Um, it's a bit hard to explain, isn't it? Um, Instead of just thinking someone will be able to fix it for you. Yes, yes, an editor can't fix everything. If you if the characterisation in your novel is hopeless, like if you you know. The characters aren't individualised if they're just, you know, figures being moved about on the chessboard of your own, um, not really very well developed imagination. Then, um, you know, nobody can edit that. If you self-publish, you're not going to get many sales. Um, publishers aren't going to look at it. If your handling of point of view is a mess, a publisher might not actually have enough time to tell you so in the rejection letter so you're better to to get an editor editor slash assessor to look at it earlier um, before you send anything away how soon do you know that something when you first sit down and read a manuscript how soon do you know that something is good or it will be successful um it's interesting. It, it, it can be. Even even if a manuscript needs a heck of a lot of work and the writer needs a heck of a lot of development, you can often tell in the first few pages that, oh my goodness, this person's got the spark. This person has got that, that drive. The story has got that drive and the story has got a good writer who's there at the wheel. Um, and that's exciting. And we've had some that I've been the first reader, the first assessor, and I have felt that real burst of excitement. But they might have 
then had to go on for several assessments. And then when they found a publisher had a lot of editing. But but you know from the start that this person hasn't got what it takes. Other times you don't know. But the writer can develop it. Um, Are there some people in particular that you've been happy to work with or, or excited to work with? Um, well, I, I didn't work with Alan Duff myself, um, but I remember reading the first... The, the first time Chris showed me that manuscript, he said, I think this is ready and I think you need to read it. And I remember very clearly on the first few pages thinking, oh, this is not a conventional style, this is really difficult material, but oh my goodness, this is, this is amazing. Um, and keeping on reading and Chris walking through the room and I was about a third of the way through or further and I just looked up at him and I said this writer shouldn't be getting away with, what's he's getting, with what he's getting away with and Chris said yeah I know <laughs> great you know but he got away with it uh, so unconventional and um, so that, that was a fabulous experience and I've had other books um, one a couple of YA books in particular, um, Aaron Top, uh, the first draft of a manuscript he sent us, I thought, oh my goodness, he's got what it takes. And Rachel Craw <clears throat> is another, thinking, oh my goodness, this, this writer knows teenagers so well. And, and they've, both, they've both done really well. So you also served on the National Council for NZSA in, in Wellington, was that? Um, I was Wellington Chair for one year, um, <clears throat> only one year because uh, Chris was vice president at that point and the house just began to crowd us out with the amount of paperwork and paper papers to read that were coming. Um, I also began to feel that this, this was too much. I mean, we were writers, we were doing the manuscript assessing, we were working in the small way we do as agents and if we were both on the society on it was still pen at that point both on the committee that just began to it just began to be too much I felt too many we've got too many fingers and too many pies it's just it's 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 a bit silly so um, um, I drew back from from that political aspect of the society um, I enjoyed it while I was on it, certainly. You meet some really interesting people, um, for one thing, and also interesting to to hear about the um, what's happening politically for writers. But um, but that that's that's all I've done actually as as a, a member of National Council. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the public lending right and how that's benefited you. I think it's one of the most important things that the Society of Authors has done. And of course it started um, years back under under Penn in the 1970s, I think, wasn't it, that it started? Um, yes, I think it was. I wish that it had kept up with the... that the amount that writers get had, had kept up with the cost of living. I wish the anomalies had been sorted out. Um, so that it makes it fairer to all writers. Um, but 
apart from that, you know, it's, it's just so good that we have it at all. And there's always work to do on it. And, and I don't think, I don't think writers, even in the society, understand quite how important it is for our overall income each year. How much of a percentage has it made up of yours over the years? Oh, well, writer's income always, it's, it's always an awkward cash flow. And sometimes it flows and sometimes it doesn't. So that, you know, chunk of um, money at the end of the year is, is really important. Um, and it's also important, I think, that it does cover books and libraries because it, it gives a much more honest view of the life of the of a book. Um, to to libra- books stay in libraries for much longer than they will stay on bookshelves and shops um, for people to buy. So it's 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 a much more fair way of um, of, of estimating. How many, how many books a writer has, and how how valuable they are to the public? Hmm. Yeah, each I guess each borrower is a potential lost sale, isn't it? Yeah, and it helps to yeah. quantify that. And you've also been a NZSA mentor. Yes. Over the years, how, how, when did you start doing that? Um, well, when they first set up the mentor scheme, I suppose. Um, I think my very first NZSA mentee. She'd written, she'd written a very good manuscript. I was not at all surprised that it was there in the in the chosen um, book. Val Bird, that's right. I knew it would come to me if I just left it alone for a while. Um, very good manuscript. Um, and it ended up getting published and, and doing quite well, I think. Mm. Yeah. And there have been several over the years of all sorts, children's books, um, adult novels, mostly adult novels, I think. Uh, in fact, I've just finished, oh, sitting on the table over there is the latest one I've mentored um, by Gareth Ward, a YA steampunk novel, um, Brass Witch and Bot. He's just sent me a copy. Um, that was fun to work on. It's good, the, the mentor process is especially good when you've got a writer with a really professional attitude and they um, for one thing they understand or can take on board what you say much more easily and, and take it up and run with it in their own directions and that's that's what's important mm. um, I think a mentor needs to point out areas of weakness but it's up to the author to to do what they think with it. It's probably important, it's important also to give suggestions, but you shouldn't ever expect the suggestions to be taken up in the way that you would do it yourself. It's up to the writer to think, okay, that's one way of doing it, here's my way of fixing whatever it might be. Mm. In that time, in the time you've been publishing, we've seen self-publishing mature. Mm. Um, What's your perspective on self-publishing over the years? Uh, it has changed a great deal. Um, my attitude to it has changed a great deal because writers have become generally much more professional and are much more prepared to pay attention themselves to those professional aspects like design, editing, and they understand the self-publishing process a lot better. Although that said, um, 
I, uh, we still get um, approaches from people who've been sucked in by vanity presses and have realised that the contracts they're being offered are completely against all normal principles of publishing. Is it when they pay to? Yes. And, and you know, to, to, be, to be honest about it, the, the, the work is not ready to be published, but the vanity publisher will say it is, and it's just so, it, it, is, it is distressing for an editor to see that sort of thing happening. And it's and it's so damaging to the writer. They lose a lot of money, and and I I was actually shocked to realise the extent to which that is still happening in New Zealand. Oh well, it's it's generally overseas publishers. There is a bit of it in, in New Zealand, I would suspect, but um, much more often now you will get really really honourable self-publishing. Um, Companies who do a fabulous job, they um, they give good, sensible advice. They they're not there to rip off the writer. They are there to um, to help books get published that won't otherwise get published, because the commercial publishing scene is much more difficult than it used to be. So it's now a pretty viable path for yes, it is. Yeah. someone who yeah. may once have got a book deal and yeah. I think the, the books that I've seen succeed as self-published books are ones that um, would definitely have been taken up by a commercial publisher in the past. I mean, just a, a, as an example, um, last time I was um, a judge for the Children's Book Awards, I think we had three or even four self-published books on the, on the shortlists, and I thought that would just never have happened. 10 years ago, from that point, would just never have happened. You're listening to the NZSA Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but we wanted to take this opportunity to let you know about the new online writer toolkit. From getting a new project started to negotiating a contract, the writer toolkit will take you through a year's worth of learning about craft and industry. Taught by experienced writing professionals, the Writer Toolkit will contain pre-recorded online content with writing exercises or assignments which you can work through at your own pace. Visit authors.org.nz to learn more. In 2018, Barbara Else published Go Girl with Penguin Random House, a collection of short biographies and beautiful images of inspiring New Zealand women. Barbara told Naomi how the book came together, catching a wave of international interest in women role models. Well, that was another something that came out of the blue. I got an email one, one morning from Penguin Random House talking about rebel girls, and I thought, it was a great long email. I thought, well, why are they telling me all this? And then they got to the point and they said, we want to do a New Zealand version and we'd like to ask you to to be the, the writer. When the whole point of these sorts of books, Rebel Girls and 
what Go Girl turned out to be, was to show girls, especially especially from the ages of, well, 8 through to 16 or so, that women could be anything they chose to be. They could succeed in all sorts of areas. It was to, to give them confidence in themselves. So it was really a book for the reader rather than to show the range of wonderful things New Zealand women have done. Um, to me, that seemed such an important thing to do. That was certainly what I took from that email, and I just thought the deadline is so tight, but I just have to do it. I just had to do it. It was a physical drive to just, yes, I was just so excited about it, even if it was going to mean, which it did mean, shutting down all social activity for three months so I could get through the work before deadline. So doing 48 stories in three months, what did that look like day to day? Uh, well, it was a treadmill, but a really marvellous one. Um, I think I got into the swing, the first few stories took longer to do because I was still figuring out what the book was going to need and I decided that I didn't want to do just straight little nutshell biographies um, they had that each one had to have a particular focus um, some of them could be short biographies but but there had to be something in each one that spoke to a particular child I suppose I thought I want, I want any child to be able to pick up this book and find someone in there who's like them on whatever level it might be. It might be the shy child or the, the outgoing one that's always been told to be quiet, you know. So I wanted something to find something um, in the childhood of the woman that would that a, that a child could identify with. And so that helped because it meant that I was looking for a focus when I was reading up about each woman. And it's actual stories, it's not just the bio. Yeah, yeah. To make it a storybook, yeah. not just a collection of little bios. Um, I had a oh, I had a couple of lists and I hadn't coordinated them and I I um what did I lose? Um World of Wearable Art. Um Susie? Susie, yeah, Susie Moncrief. I lost her at one point. I thought, I'm sure I've done a story of her, but I haven't got a ticked off this list. What's happened? Have I gone mad? But, <laughs> but I had two different lists that, as I said, they hadn't coordinated properly. But it was, I would draft, I would read up about a woman in the morning, try to draft the previous day's woman in the afternoon, and with luck start. You know, so it was it was like moving over and over, backwards and forwards, stitching, I suppose. It was relentless. Mm. And I knew, I mean, they'd um, they decided it was going to be um, alphabetical depending on the first name of the woman. So um, that that helped because I didn't want all the stories to be on the same sort of tone same sort of level so I knew what the order was going to be so I could think okay if this person whose name begins with a K 
has a serious sort of story? Can I put some you know, more humour or something, a, a different quality in the next one? So that helped to give it some variety, I think. So I was sort of having to keep an overview at the same time while working intensely on the, on the, the individual pieces. It's good to have that parameter for the next one rather than just trying to slot everything in afterwards. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's helpful mm. to have that. Um, and what was the response to that? Because a lot of those women, um, a, a lot of us would never have heard of, and mm. you said at one point um, in the Press for Go Girl that there were only a handful of statues of New Zealand women yes. in the whole country. Um, and I'd never heard of Margaret the Cruikshank. Um, the, um, yes, the, the, the doctor in Wyoming. The, the, the doctor, yeah, that's such a sad story. Now that's that's true heroism, isn't it? That's what a hero is supposed to do to serve the community, come out of nowhere and serve the community. It's just a fabulous story. Um, yes, yeah, some I hadn't heard of, um, but it was really interesting to research them, um, finding a different way of a different approach to the story different technical approach or a different thematic approach to each one was the, was the biggest challenge, but the one I enjoyed the most as well. But my goodness, it was hard work. It was massive. And at the end of it, oh, well, at the one point after, after I'd finished it and sent it off, and I was probably going through the several proofreadings it did go through, Chris said to me, you know, if you'd asked me straight out at the beginning whether you should do it or not, I would have said no. But I'm so glad I didn't ask him straight out. I was just so determined to do it, even though I knew what an effort it was going to be. Um, Why were you so determined? Uh, because of the importance to the reader, to those, those girls who, you know, if I'd had a book like that, when I was eight or nine or ten, you know, it would have it would have been fantastic. It would really have um, helped me speak up, I think, or helped me be a bit more, yeah, a bit more definite about things that I felt but couldn't articulate. So as a lot of your writing has, it's hard to, not to say women's issues, <laughs> a lot of your writing has looked at women's lives, yeah. um, examined women's lives, and what do you think of the moment we're in now? Um, have you know we've made some political, social, legal strides, but mm. in some ways have gone backwards. Um, yeah, what what do you see? Uh, well, I'm not sure that we've gone backwards. I think we're now able to focus on things that have been there all along, that have just never really gone away. Like the, um, you know, the microaggressions and the, um, some of those entrenched misogynistic attitudes. Uh, it's not necessarily the patriarchy, but it's the misogyny that goes along with it. And it's absolutely not all men, but often the ones with the most power are misogynistic. And... Um, that's what's so damaging. It's because that's what says to women, 
to girls, you can't do these things, you're not worth it. And being told that is just the most awful, awful, awful thing. And it happens to all women, no matter what race or culture. And as I see it, you know, I can really only write about um, white New Zealand culture from personal experience, of course. Um, but if it affects, if I get so angry about what happens to my group of women, how much more awful it is for other groups, God's sake, you know, let's do something, let's do what we can to open people's eyes to just how how damaging even the smallest little negative thing can be to a person, in this case to, to a, a girl. Yeah. Mm. And how do you think women writing and women reading other women helps them face that? Oh, I think it's I think it's really interesting the way over my writing career I've seen more and more women being published and those stories of domestic life being given the the the, um, the, the significance and importance that, that they ought to have because you've got to start with the family, with the individual, and his or her or their um, uh, original background. That's where things begin. So, um, it was really uh, my own first short stories were mostly all about men, male protagonists. Um, not entirely, but it, but it was a I was just seeing what Fiona Kidman was doing that made me start to think, ah, you know, a woman's life can be mined for really significant insight. And it's and seeing Linda Burgess's first short stories and her, her novels absolutely in some way seeming to she used to it seemed to me that she was writing my life. I lived through the same sorts of things and and that's that's an incredibly empowering thing to feel that you're it, 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 it gives you confidence, it makes you feel supported, it it makes you well, it gives you it gives you worth. When did you do the children's writing fellow residency at Otago? Um that was two thousand and sixteen, so four years ago. That's we came down to Dunedin just for the six months of the residency and ended up buying this house part way through. Not what we intended when we came down. What do you think about it being named a UNESCO City of Literature? Oh, that's, I think that's important. Uh, that happened around about the time we came down. And um, I think it, it, it signifies what an important aspect of life, the creative life, is down here. And words, words and ideas. Yeah. Do you think that will attract more? Will it become a core that people will gravitate? Mm-hmm. I think it's already starting. Um, yeah, since since we've been here, some 
other um, writers have moved here. Um, it is a very lively scene in that way. So, so back to the fellowship, what was that like for you? Was it the College of Education? Yes, yes, yeah. Oh, it was great. Um, it was the first, until we bought the house, we were living in the Robert Lord Cottage, which is really, really tiny. And um, I, I used to, so very close, I was about 20 minutes walk, 15, 20 minutes walk from the um, from there to the teacher's college. And uh, I used to love that walk in every morning. Um, seeing the students starting to mill about between lectures and, um, and sort of wandering home sort of mid to late afternoon. It was beautifully relaxed. It was just gorgeous. And it must be one of the first times that you're working on one thing at once, or do we do another work as well? Um, no, I was just just working on the novel, and it was a really difficult stage for the novel. Um, it was trying to find what it wanted to be. Um, so there was a lot of wrestling that would have taken a lot, lot longer if, I'd, if I hadn't had that space of time. Um, so you're working on Hasu and the Weir Stout, mm. and how, that's your most recent book, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. What was it, that's, that book's genesis? I, I'd, I've always been fascinated by the story of um, Beowulf and how the, you know, the monster Grendel comes and um, creates destruction time and time again and Beowulf finally defeats Grendel but then finds that there's an even more terrible monster about and that's Grendel's mother and uh, I've, I had sometimes thought well how could poor Grendel do any, be anything but awful if he had a mother that bad and so from that thought I, I decided, what would it be like if, if you had a terrible parent, but you, what would it take to make you be a good person or a, a good creature? Um, and uh, I thought this. There are I, I I know lots and lots of people who've had difficult upbringings but they're not they're not terrible themselves so you know there, there is something you know and this would be a story of of um, hope really no matter how awful the situation might be that if you're well what would it take to to give it a positive ending so that's something I wanted to explore and and for that age group um, at one point, I did wonder whether it ought to be a novel for adults because uh, because it it could have dealt with some extremely dark material, and I know it still does, I think. But um, I thought, no, I don't want to. I don't want to go that dark. <laughs> um, that's the only time I've wondered whether whether. Well, it was a story that could go for two audiences, but it would have needed completely different treatments. Mm. Would it have been the same novel if you didn't have that fellowship? How important is it to have that focused time? Because writers are always trying to find time. Mm. Um, how much does that help? 
Well, it, first of all, it gives you um, a big boost, a big psychological boost, because you apply for a particular story, um, and it means that people who know what they're doing know what um, know about children's literature. In this case, um, it's a story that they think um, should be told. Know, give it a chance to be told. But there are no pressures on you to actually produce anything. It's it's um, it's that as you say, it's that space of time to to really get to understand your own creative process sometimes, whether it's generally your creative process or just the way this particular story needs you to to deal with it. Um, yeah, that space of time is, is really valuable. Because yeah. you, you had the Creative New Zealand Scholarship as well, didn't you, in Letters in 2004? Uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a big grant. That was for Wild Latitudes, oh, yes. I think. Yes, yeah. I think it was, yes. Which yeah. must have been really demanding, um, producing that voice and all the research oh, involved. Well, that was another book that was... Yes, that, that was hard work but I really loved loved working on that one because it was using all I knew about 19th century literature popular literature, literary literature, that's a tongue twister um, and also the way more modern writers treat those times and, and the way they write about them and thought there's a lot of fun to be had in sort of mixing all that up. Are you pleased with how that went? Yeah, it... Um, actually, I think that got the best reviews that I've ever got for, for anything. And, um, yeah, I found one of them just the other day, when I, well, yesterday, when I was sorting through that messy box of material, and I thought... Oh yeah, I'd forgotten that character and that character. So, yeah, it was it was just such fun to write. That was a that was the main thing. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, and then, what was it like winning the Margaret Mahi Medal? I found it hard to believe. <laughs> you know, the it was a time when I thought, well, if they think I've done enough to get it. They ought to know what you're doing, but if I haven't done enough to deserve it, I'd better get on do enough. <laughs> no, it was it was a really astonishing accolade. It really was. Mm. So in 2005, you were awarded the NNZ. Mm. Well, what was that like? Oh, very similar to the Margaret Mahi Award. I thought, is this can this be? Can this be true? You know, am I really ready for this? And, oh well, I'd better keep on doing more. I, for a moment, I did consider saying no. But then I thought they're not going to give it to another writer, are they? So, um, you know, they might never offer it to me again. So, <laughs> but I'd better take it. Why do you consider saying no? <laughs> oh, partly because I'm not so sure about the honours system. Um, on the other hand. Uh, I couldn't see that there was any political advantage to anyone in 
making sure I had it or anything like that. So, <laughs> Carl Mewburn, who was the who's past president president of NZSA, suggested the need for a child, children's laureate. Um, what do you think about that idea? I think it's a great idea because, oh, lots of reasons. One is that we've got some absolutely fabulous children's writers here who would do a brilliant job about about that. Um, promoting children's literature. Also, it's very important, not just promoting it, but showing how important it is, um, because it does tend to be looked on as a, um, you know, oh, oh, by the way, we've got children's writers, you know, it's an aside, it's a, an add-on, well, it's not. It's, it's where we start to grow the readers, the adult readers of the future, but also, you know, we need our own stories. We need to... That's one reason Go Girl was important to so many people. Um, having our own stories there is, is just, uh, as I said before, it's so, so encouraging. It was your, your confidence. It gives you a better sense of yourself, a, a, a more positive sense of yourself. Um, but I think a children's laureate would, would help do all that sort of thing. And did you have any thoughts on copyright in the situation in New Zealand or copyright issues that have been emerging with the digital space? Um, this is another area where I think Society Wolf is, is doing fantastic work in very difficult circumstances, trying to make sure writers' rights and writers' income um, are upheld and protected. Um, I think, you know... The situation's been really dangerous. Wanting to deny writers any income, basically, from their own work. I mean, why? Why would you do that? It's called slavery, isn't it? Which is, you know, that might be over the top, but it's, you know, surely we need to be paid for work. Finally, how do you think New Zealand could do better for its writers and authors? Well, a stronger PLR, um, better copyright legislation for writers and all creators, more attention given to New Zealand books of all genres, and that's one thing we haven't really covered, but I, I do think that New Zealand... The New Zealand literary scene works best when we support each other, no matter what genre or area we're writing in. We, we, um, we're all telling our stories. We're all New Zealanders writing about wherever and whatever we're writing about. Um, we need to make sure that our books are read here. There's no point in writing them if they're not going to be read. And uh, I think we can do a lot to support each other simply by You've been listening to Barbara Else in discussion with Naomi Arnold on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. You can hear the first part of Barbara's interview along with other past episodes, including one with Barbara's husband and fellow writer Chris Else on the website authors.org.nz. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple or wherever you listen. 
This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby McLeod with audio support by Yana Tanahu Owen for the New Zealand Society of Authors. NZSA would like to thank the Southern Trust for funding this season and also UNESCO and the Otago Community Trust for the funding to record new oral histories with authors based in Otago. Noturno by Ottorino Respigi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. I'm Karen Hay, and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. Kakite anō.